all the feels on this one. Because that's what the science says. Welcome to The Whole View. I'm Stacey Toth of Real Everything. I'm all about loving the skin you're in and being healthy inside and out. Let's talk about what this looks like in real life. Facts do not have opinions. And I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantyne of thepaleomom.com. I believe that scientific literacy is the key to improving public health. Just don't let perfection be the enemy of the good. Science is true whether or not you believe in it. Self-love is really about self-respect and acceptance. Hello, listeners. Welcome back to episode 476 of The Whole View, whereby I know that this question was asked by somebody else, but I feel very seen. <laughs> uh, I, I, yeah, it's been a tough couple of years, you know, whether, whether you're just an introvert, beloved kindred spirit, um, or you just, you know, you're just feeling like you don't want to do nothing. Um, I think we can all relate to today's topic. I definitely can relate in part because this question is from one of my team members, Carissa. Um, so it's also something that we've talked about personally. And I think it's something that it's just an experience I think we've all had, especially this last year and a half. But it's something that I think ebbs and flows with different times of our lives. And I found it really fascinating to go back into the scientific research to really like figure out all the different moving pieces of this question. And I just, I, I think it's, I think it's such a valuable conversation. So shout out to Carissa for submitting a question to the podcast. A hundred percent. And a very relatable one that I think a lot of people are going to identify with. So should we jump in? Let's do it. So Carissa wrote, Hello, Sarah and Stacy. Even though it's part of my job to listen to the podcast every week, it's something I really look forward to and I am a fan. I highly value both of your thoughts and I had a unique question I would love your take on. I've recently found myself in a place a lot of single people have, very, very alone. The only people I socialize with in person are my parents, once a month for a few hours, and the only other interaction I have is with the wonderful women I work with virtually, although we all converse almost daily and it is not 100% work-focused. I don't have friendships outside of that or participate socially in any way. In addition, I've been off all social media except for work for over a year, and I don't leave my house except for bi-weekly grocery trips. I did get my hair cut finally after I was fully vaccinated, and I did go to Target once, but I am no hurry to do either again. I've also found myself in a place where I have no desire to make new friends, dive back into the dating pool, or drawn to start a family. So basically, I'm 40-plus going on 80 Here's the thing. I am now the happiest I have been since the pandemic started, outside of all the upsetting things still going on all around us. I love waking up alone in my own home, cooking, nesting, working, watching movies, walking my dog, and I am not bored or envious of others. I've essentially created a whole new lifestyle for myself, taking homebody to a whole new level. So my question is, can you be a healthy hermit or will my little bubble of happiness lead to an unhealthy life long term? I just want to give another shout out to Carissa for her vulnerability in sharing this and also for cultivating a life for herself that others might not be brave enough to do. Like, I think that I really love alone time, but I'm also 
afraid of being alone. And so I'm not that I could ever be alone. I have, you know, five bajillion people in my house. But I think that there's a lot to that push and pull that we all feel, right, of how to balance. And we have talked years and years ago on the show about socialization and how um, impactful that is in terms of um, our health because of how it affects our mental health and um, all of those kinds of things. The same thing with like play, right, and fun. And those kinds of things are important for our brain chemistry. And so I'm looking forward to kind of like revisiting some of that stuff with a new perspective and also um, from a more scientific approach and also um, kind of exploring a little bit about what individually when we are alone, um, how we can evaluate if that is good for us. And I'm using quotation marks when I say that because I think that's relative. Does that make sense? Uh, Yes, no, completely. I also, I think we've mentioned on the show sort of benefits of connection. We've talked about oxytocin. We've talked about social networks. We've certainly done an entire show on social media, but I I thought we had done a whole show on just sort of the the benefits of connection and the, the harm of social isolation. And as I look back, I realized we've never actually just done this science deep dive on why social connection is so important. So I thought that was a good place to start because I think um, there's a lot of different aspects of Chris's question. And sort of fundamentally, I think her question is, if I have these other sources of social connection, A, are those enough? And B, is there anything wrong with being happy living by myself? And so I thought kind of taking that step back and just looking at the science of connection was was a great place to start. Yeah, absolutely. And I know you've done a blog post on the health benefits of connection. So we'll put a link in the show notes so that people can go look more in depth there. But I know you're going to give us the give us the highlights so that we can all be on the same page as we dive deeper into this, right? Absolutely. So researchers have examined this this question, the role that connection plays in our health by looking at the two extremes of connection. So looking at social isolation and loneliness, and it turns out that that corresponds to an increased risk of morbidity and mortality, so disease and death. Um, And on the flip side of that coin, a strong social support network also is associated with a decreased risk of disease and as well as longer lifespan. And so what's been really interesting is sort of digging into actually a really large body of scientific literature. And this has been studied in hundreds and hundreds of different studies and trying to look at um, how that research can be translated into our day-to-day lives. So for example, one of the biggest meta-analyses that was ever performed looking at social connection and its relation to all-cause mortality, all-cause mortality being a very broad general measure of health and longevity. Um, This 2010 meta-analysis included data from 148 different studies. They striated by all kinds of of different different factors. So they looked at age and gender and uh, health going into the study. They looked at the length of follow-up period. They looked at the causes of the eventual death. Um, So they they really tried to be very robust. And what they found was that 
people with stronger social relationships had about a 50% higher chance of survival than people with very weak social bonds. Um, and so that was a one of the most important big analyses of you know a huge data set from all of those different papers. The association was strongest for complex measures of social integration. So when you do look at complex measures of social integration, you're looking at a whole pile of different factors in order to basically determine basically how socially connected somebody is. So you're looking at uh, their family network, their friend network, uh, who lives in their home. You're looking at whether they participate in uh, community activities, whether or not they have a, a church or a, or a similar sort of structured uh, environment where, where they're connecting with people outside of the home. You're looking at all of these different things. Um, and what was interesting was the, the least valuable indicators were residential status, so living alone versus living with others. But uh, what's really been interesting about that is not all studies have shown that to be the case. Um, so I want to stick a pin in that because we're going to come back to that. There's been a bunch of additional studies that have looked at how social isolation um, can raise mortality risk independent of loneliness, which is very interesting to me because, um, you know, social isolation is in large part, it is subjective, right? So it's how do you feel connected to the people around you, but there are ways to objectively measure social isolation. So there have been studies that have looked at that and have basically said that even if we don't feel lonely, a lack of social support can still be potentially harming to our health. And there was actually a study published last week um, looking at people age 69 and over living in Sweden. And they actually found that social isolation was more strongly associated with mortality than loneliness. Um, and the association was still there even when they controlled for health. Um, and the combined effects of loneliness and social isolation were not uh, higher. So they weren't additive, um, which is also, I mean, at least a little bit of, of good news. So it's it's interesting to kind of look at social isolation from a very quantitative perspective, which is what this study did. There have been studies that have looked at loneliness as a predictor of dementia. There was a 2019 meta-analysis that showed that um, people over the age of 65 who were lonely had a 26% increased risk of dementia. There have been studies that have looked at how social connection impacts immunity. There was a 2005 study that evaluated how loneliness and a lack of social connected connection affected the antibody production in response to an influenza vaccine. This was done in college freshmen, and it showed that uh, those freshmen who felt lonely had a substantially inhibited antibody response to the influenza vaccine, indicating that they had some suppressed immune response. Um, one of the the most important studies in this field is an older one. It's from 1997. They actually did a um, an upper respiratory infection challenge. So they actually inoculated the volunteers with uh, rhinovirus that was uh, given as nasal drops. And they showed that people having more different kinds of social ties. So again, this looks at the complex measures of social integration. So those social ties included parents, partners, friends, coworkers, and other community members. 
they had greater resistance to actually developing a clinical cold um, after that rhinovirus challenge. Can I ask um, a question? Was, yeah. So you're using the term loneliness, and I feel like mm-hmm. we need to define that a bit because to Carissa's point, she's feeling good. She's not feeling yeah. lonely. Whereas in some other studies, they're not defining it by loneliness. They're defining it by lack of social connection. So can you just kind of maybe clarify that for me in terms of like, if all that we're looking at, so for example, when I think of dementia, one of the things that I've read a lot about dementia is that it's lack of brain stimulation that increases the speed at which dementia can affect one's health. And so therefore, if you're having you know, regular conversations with people, I could see how that would um, directly affect it. And also things like, um, you know, like my grandfather did daily crossword puzzles and different kinds of things like that, that um, kept the brain sharper. And so I'm wondering if someone is saying they feel lonely, right, how that would be a predictor of dementia makes sense to me. Whereas someone, for example, like Carissa, who doesn't feel lonely and who has other kinds of connection. Like, I'm just trying to parse out these studies to different circumstances, if that makes sense, right? Like, you could be alone and not lonely. And would that change the effect of these studies is, I guess, a direct question. Yes. So um, I I guess it's worthwhile taking a step back and sort of looking at um, the three main types of measures that they're using to measure social isolation. So they're looking at a complex measures of social isolation, which is assessed typically through uh, like an intake interview or through a questionnaire where they're looking at the relationships that you have that are close fostered relationships, right? So your relationships with family, with friends, with a partner, uh, with other community members. So they're looking at how you interact with people in your life. Um, So that is typically considered a fairly objective measure, right? So it's, it's a, again, there's a lot of different things that would go into determining how socially isolated you are, but it's just looking at how you're interacting with, with people. Um, so, uh, you can feel socially isolated and have a lot of interaction. So you would be objectively not socially isolated, but feel socially isolated and vice versa. So you can feel like you're not socially isolated. Um, and when you actually measure the interactions with people, the quantitative measure would say that you are. The biggest analysis looking at that specific difference, subjective versus objective social isolation, uh, was a 2015 meta-analysis. And it showed no difference in all-cause mortality from objective versus subjective social isolation. So whether you measured it by asking somebody if they feel socially isolated versus did this like complex measure looking at all of their different um, like social interactions uh, with people, um, that increased risk of mortality by 29% in that meta-analysis. Loneliness is a whole different thing, right? It's an emotion. Again, it is typically assessed with a questionnaire. And in this 2015 meta-analysis, they showed that there was an independent increased risk of all-cause mortality from loneliness by 26%. So it wasn't quite as big of an effect as social isolation. And then they separately assessed solitary living 
um, in this meta-analysis and showed that it increased death by 32%. Um, what is interesting about that, though, is when you're pooling data from all of these different studies, when these different studies are trying to assess social isolation, they're looking at loneliness and solitary living as proxies for social isolation. Um, so they're typically um, they're typically not looked at in sort of Chris's case, um, but there was a really fascinating 2019 study that did exactly evaluate this, um, and uh, we will get there. Okay, well, I'm excited to get there. I appreciate you kind of walking that back, because I do think it's relative to um, some of the results, if that makes sense, at least how I was listening and processing. So um, in this uh, study where they looked at people who um, had various different degrees of social ties um, and gave them rhinovirus as nasal drops, um, what was really interesting was that they could partially explain the difference by looking at other things like smoking, poor sleep quality, uh, alcohol consumption, dietary vitamin C, um, but they were only able to like partially account for the difference in relative risk. The difference in relative risk was really high. So the people with the um, most social ties uh, had a quarter the risk of getting a clinical cold as the people with the fewest social ties in that study. Um, so it still remains, even though it's, you know, like a 30-year-old study, or no, 20, 20, I can't count, 23-year-old study, um, it's, it still remains sort of one of the most uh, interesting studies because of that aspect of a viral challenge, uh, just in terms of evaluating social ties on immune function. I, I don't appreciate you referring to 1997 as a 23 year old study 24. with such emphasis like it's so long ago in ye olden days 1900s you know like I get enough of that from my teens okay thanks <laughs> did I ever tell you about the time this is a complete tangent um Mira my youngest daughter was going to the school dance and it was an 80s theme and she she was I'm we, already you know, shaking my head like stop I stop I know and I, I took her, it was a, it's a family dance, right? So it's parent child. And I took her and she said, uh, mom, were you alive in the eighties? And I said, not only was I alive in the eighties, I was alive for the entire 1980s. And she looked just wide eyed. She goes, really? I heard that in the olden days before there was paper, they used to write on like on stones, did you have to do that when you were in school? Completely genuine. Completely Stop. genuine. And it, she wasn't like four years old. This is like she was maybe in first or second oh grade. Oh gosh. And uh, and I just completely straight face said, "No, I was really lucky that paper was invented by the time I was in school." <laughs> I have like this whole thread of jokes that like the kids will make with me like about how old I am and first of all Matt's older than me not by much but like they just know it gets to my nerves and they always refer to it as the 1900s because they know that that like <laughs> grates under my skin 
Okay, moving right along. I just was feeling a little bit triggered by <laughs> your use of like very old study. It's so old. They're just really lucky that paper was invented by the time you know they what? Went to go Good publish thing. this, Good this thing. study. Otherwise, you know what? Maybe they use stone tablets. You never know. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true. It's uh, the original language of science. Sarah, I get to say. Today's podcast is sponsored by Rothy's. Do you know how long I've wanted to be sponsored by Rothy's? <laughs> um, forever. I remember when you first told me about them, a B Corp that uses sustainably made materials like upcycled plastic water bottles. And they're completely washable, available in a variety of styles and colors. I just got a limited edition color of The Point, and they are my new favorite pair of shoes. I love them so much. Do I have to choose a favorite? Because... I own, I counted before this, 16 pairs and two purses. I love them. I use my essential tote all the time and love that it can be thrown in the wash. They make really great gifts too. I have gifted both shoes and purses. I might be a little obsessed. Um, I even got Matt a pair when the men's came out. Let's be real. If there's something we've learned from the last two years, it's that we don't need hard pants or high heels. Rothy's are super cute, but I was also surprised by how crazy comfortable they are. I would recommend using the sizing on their site. Going up a size is sometimes recommended, and I found that to be the case for me. Yeah, same. I started wearing them way back when I injured my back, and they were so comfortable and classy for wearing daily in a corporate office environment. Um, I had a lot of flats, the ballet kind, and points, the kind that you just got and liked, um, and loafers. Those were my go-tos, but most recently I got the new driver style. I don't know if you saw those, but they have like cushioning on the bottom, and I want all the colors. They're available in tons of shapes, styles, colors, patterns, prints. You can always find one that'll work for you. To help you welcome the fall season in style, Rothy's is doing something really special. They gave us the chance to share this super rare opportunity with our listeners for a limited time. Right now, you can get $20 off your first purchase at rothys.com slash wholeview. That's R-O-T-H-Y-S dot com slash wholeview. Head to rothys.com slash wholeview to find your new favorites today. Okay, I know we've had our <laughs> little tangent here, but let me bring it back for you. We were talking about studies, science, something. <laughs> <laughs> Way to reel it in. Uh, yes, we were talking about all of the different ways that science has measured the negative health impact of loneliness and social isolation, given that those are very complex things to actually measure. Um, so again, there's there's tons of there's so many studies that there's actually a lot of different meta-analyses and systematic reviews, which as we've covered on the show before, are the types of studies that pool data from the full you know, body of scientific literature on that subject in order to start to put these sort of like definitive numbers on things. So what is the magnitude of the effect? And these, these studies are really where science starts to go from exploring a topic to reaching scientific consensus. So it's that process from a 
lack of human knowledge on a topic all the way through to settled science that goes through systematic reviews and meta-analyses. So these are really um, the types of studies that I put the highest weight on in terms of how they help us understand a question that can be answered by science. So a 2016 systematic review and meta-analysis looked at loneliness, again, that's subjective, and social isolation, typically measured objectively in these studies on cardiovascular disease, and showed that poor social relationships were associated with a 29% increase in the risk of coronary heart disease and a 32% increased risk of stroke. Um, So studies have basically looked at different types of chronic illnesses, shown that uh, they generally increase with uh, low social connectiveness. And the mechanisms aren't going to be surprising. They seem to be predominantly mediated through psychosocial stressors. So um, they've shown that this correlates with cortisol, so social isolation tends to lead to higher cortisol, feeling socially connected, lowers cortisol. Um, It seems to be potentially through that then impacting inflammation and immune function. Um, So we see, for example, measurements of uh, inflammation like C-reactive protein and the cytokine interleukin-6 are lower when people have high degrees of of social integration. Again, this has been shown in a variety of studies. And there was a a really important meta-analysis that actually evaluated the magnitude of effect of social relationships on health and compared it to other known risk factors, including smoking, alcohol consumption, and physical inactivity, and basically showed that Uh, especially when you take these broader, more complex measures of uh, social connectiveness, that that actually is a bigger contributor to health outcomes than even smoking, which was the next highest. And it was uh, the highest contributor to health outcomes uh, in among all of the different factors that they compared it against. So these studies show us that, you know, humans are, social creatures and social connectiveness is actually really important for our health. But Stacey, as you very sort of astutely identified already, that saying saying the word social isolation is not the same thing as saying living alone. And as I mentioned, this has finally just recently been methodically assessed. It's really interesting to comb through the scientific literature and look at solitary living, not being identified separately from social networks, but rather being used as a proxy to measure the strength of social networks. But this 2019 study, I think, was very, very illuminating and one that I was very excited to read because it felt like it answered this missing piece for me because I've been looking at this research for a few years. So this was a huge study. It included over 50,000 older retired adults in Europe. And what they did was they looked at different types of social networks. So they also didn't just do the subjective measurement of, you know, has, has a lot of different social ties versus not very many social ties. They looked at people with uh, child-based, so their children-based um, social networks, so family-based. They looked at 
social networks that were friend-based, so they're mainly interacting with a friend group. They looked at what they called diverse social networks. So there's some family, there's some friends, there's, uh, you know, some, uh, you know, their church or whatever it is. Um, so there's social ties coming from multiple different places. And they looked at what were called, uh, what they called restricted social networks, which meant uh, very, very limited social ties. And what they found was only those restricted social networks, the ones with very, very few um, uh, social ties in people who were living by themselves. So that was it. All of the people in this study were living by themselves. Only the people with very few social networks, uh, very few social connections had poor well-being. So the study shows really the importance of drawing a distinction within groups of people who are living alone. Um, they actually found that most two-thirds were not considered vulnerable or at risk and were actually just as healthy, if not in better health, this is the author saying this, if not in better health than their peers who co-resided with others. So this was, I think, probably the most valuable study that's ever been done to just look at, is living alone really an independent contributor to increased mortality? And this study says, no, it's not. Uh, if you live alone and have social networks, um, this study shows that you are not at risk for increased mortality. I agree. Super fascinating. And I'm glad they were able to update that from the olden days of 1997. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think, you know, what's also interesting is looking at um, perspectives as we get older. You know, when I said it's something that I'm afraid of, and I, I Krista shared with us her age, right? Like my mortality is a little closer every day. Um, and I get worried about what would it be like if I were to lose my partner and be on my own when I'm myself getting older and needing a companion for safety and, you know, at that kind of retirement age, so to speak, right? Like, I'm assuming that we have thoughts on that. I know we, we touched on dementia, but I think of more as like the, that being another benefit of not being so socially isolated, right? When you have people actually coming and checking on you if you don't show up for things and you know what I mean? Does that, am I, I feel like I'm, no, my I th brain I think, is a ping pong ball today. I think that's a hundred percent accurate. I think also, I think that's important independent of age. So it's been really interesting is studies that have differentiated between uh, usually the, the, the point, the differential point is at 65 years old. So they consider over 65 to be older adults and under 65 to be younger adults. Um, so when they differentiate, they actually show typically that there's a stronger uh, association with living alone and feeling socially isolated and mortality younger than 65 than older than 65, which is interesting. In part, that's going to reflect that the mortality rate is going to be younger, so it's easier to tease out an effect. Um, but it actually, I think, makes a case for the benefits of having that kind of, of network of people to talk to, of people checking in with you, of people to socialize with. Um, 
and that benefit of just feeling connected no matter what our age is. Fair. I guess it's just my own personal experience that I'm thinking about what happens if something happens to Matt. Do I really, do Do I feel like I could take care of myself? We've been, um, this is like another complete tangent, but we've been together almost longer than we've been apart at this point. We're celebrating our 20 year anniversary in January. I don't know. My, my own mortality is clouding my judgment on this one. So, um, Perhaps we should just move right along before I have an existential dilemma right here on the show. <laughs> Can we talk about midlife crisis on one of our upcoming shows? I could, <laughs> I could cover that one for you. <laughs> um, I wonder if there's any science on midlife crises. That would be interesting to dig into. Honestly, there's got to 100%. Like, I have no doubt. I now, now I'm interested. Now I'm like, let's do it. What is what is the draw of sports cars as soon as you hit midlife? Yes. Well, and um, it's very different for different people, you know? Mm-hmm. So, okay. Let me, I will reel us back in. We're <laughs> back on this show. <laughs> I think that... That's one aspect of Chris's question. So one aspect is, is it, is it bad that I live alone? But I think there's a, a lot of different aspects. So we've, we've answered, no, it's not bad that you live alone. Um, but social, social networks are still really important. So I want to address another aspect of Chris's question because I want to put the, the sort of hermit life into the context of a global pandemic. I know that Krista feels safer with 99% of her environment being controlled and feeling safety from potential exposure from the outside world. And I want to acknowledge that a whole lot of us are still hunkering down. I'm not back to all of my old activities. Um, I, um, and you know, neither is my family. Um, we're being incredibly cautious with what things outside of the home we participate in. And so generally, we are still living a fairly isolated version of, of what our lifestyle was like pre-pandemic. And I know that we talked about this actually in episode 456, where we talked about foster care. We talked about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And one of the things that was really interesting for me about doing that research and learning about the foster care system from you, Stacey, was the idea that feeling safe in our environment is the most basic need and that we can't progress up this hierarchy of needs that eventually leads to self-actualization without that fundamental foundation of the pyramid of feeling safe. And I think it's really important to acknowledge that that's actually a contributor to Chris's well-being, that being, you know, the choices that she's making, uh, as she said, taking home body to a whole new level, that, that that is a reflection of the times that we're living in and the importance of safety. This podcast is sponsored by Just Thrive. I take this probiotic every day, and because I've seen such incredible results personally, I recommend it to all my skincare clients, too. Yes, Just Thrive Probiotic is completely unique, both because of the science-backed and clinically proven strains in their formula, but also because of the validation trials Just Thrive is leading. Sarah, are we going to have to get into the science? This This is a shocker. Well, since you mentioned it... 
Yes. Just Thrive uses keystone species of bacillus bacteria. And why these are so special is because they create a gut environment where other probiotics that you've probably heard of, like lactobacillus and bifidobacterium, can grow. Just Thrive's four strains have been shown to improve digestion, restore microbial diversity during infection, stabilize the gut microbiome, inhibit the growth of pathogenic species, and even produce highly bioavailable antioxidant carotenoids like lutein. I can say that because it's backed by clinical trials. In one trial, just supplementing with Just Thrive Probiotic reduced leaky gut and inflammation. Okay, I'm no scientist, but my favorite fun fact is that unlike other types of probiotics, the natural source for these probiotic strands is dirt. We humans used to eat a whole lot more of that, which is why our bodies thrive with it. Stacy, did you just make an intentional pun? Uh, yes. Love it. Uh, yes. Just Thrive Probiotic is amazing. We can get all the benefits and eating dirt is not necessary. And unlike other probiotics, Just Thrive is free of wheat, gluten, dairy, nuts, soy, salt, sugar, artificial colors or flavors, binders, fillers, allergens, or GMOs. You can get all your Just Thrive products discounted at justthrivehealth.com and use code THEWHOLEVIEW for 15% off at checkout. That includes bundles and subscriptions, so definitely double up on your savings at justthrivehealth.com with code THEWHOLEVIEW. It's interesting how that Maslow's hierarchy has come into my life in so many other ways. I think if there's one thing that I could ask for like all parents, maybe all humans, is to take some of the training and learning that we had as part of foster care, because I do think that it applies to so many things. I think another thing that really applies in this case is um, that feeling of safety and attachment and connection and how I'm very aware because I have these relationships myself that you can have those virtually. They, they don't need to be with you 100%. But I also know that like, without physical touch, without um, comfort when you need it, like an, an actual, I think there was a study I read a long time ago that said something like you need seven hugs a day for adequate mental health or something. And I, it was a, I remember it because it was a joke because Matt was telling me I needed to give and receive more hugs. You know, <laughs> I don't like hugs. But I think about that from, from the perspective of the pandemic and what Chris is going through. It's like, Yes, I have really great social connection and bonds with friendships that's virtual. Yours, for example. You and I haven't seen each other in years, but we're very connected, right? Yeah. Like I, all the time we can, I don't need to get into it, but, you know, we have a virtual friendship and I think a lot of people do. And yet that's not the same fulfillment for me as, you know, if I'm feeling down and I can snuggle with the kids on the sofa but we have also talked about our pets and the um, emotional connection and brain chemistry rewards right that can come from maybe snuggling up with a pup as Carissa mentioned so I'm kind of curious as we work through this like what does the science say about like those friendship connections those virtual friendship connections and can we find those things that we need otherwise in our life, maybe from other things like a dog. Do you know what I mean? Like I've, I'm, I'm, I've got a 
big old, like, it looks like a paint can that I'm just like mixing the colors up and that I'm just creating swirls at this point and it looks worse before it gets better. That's what I feel like my brain is this morning. <laughs> <And> I'm like, <laughs> I, cause I have, I just, I guess I have a lot of thoughts on this as an introvert who both needs that connection and also really values alone time. Like I, I'm just really personally, uh, identifying with much of this. Yeah, no, I am too. Also, as an introvert who really, really, really needs to be alone in order to recharge, um, I think it's, um, I think it's a really interesting topic to kind of get into. So let's start, we can start, let's start with just how friendship has changed in recent years, and especially how the pandemic has influenced friendship in general and what, you know, the 2021 American Perspectives survey found in terms of how friendships have changed. Because I think, you know, Krissa mentioned in her question that her friends are her coworkers. And I certainly feel that way. And I think uh, what the American Perspectives survey showed was that that is actually the one of the biggest differences. It was already occurring sort of before the pandemic, but that what the pandemic has done has sort of accelerated changes in sort of uh, the the broader ways that we look at social networks and how they are formed in America. And what it showed was that there's some, some huge trends that are happening. So for example, um, one of the reasons why we're more likely to make friends at work than any other place, more likely to make friends at work than school, than in our neighborhood, than a place of worship, or even through existing friends. So meeting like your friend of a friend, the most likely way Americans are to make friends is their coworkers right now. And in part, that's because Americans are working longer hours uh, than they ever have. Um, they're traveling more from for work. They're um, marrying later than than they have. They're more geographically mobile. I mean, I live three thousand miles from my family, um, and that's not uncommon a- anymore. Like it used to be that if you moved that far away from your family, it was a really big deal. And now, because of unlimited phone plans and uh, video calls and email and social media. It, we can stay connected with her family even when we have a large amount of space in between us. Um, some other changes that are kind of behind this this shift in American friendship is that American parents are spending about twice as much time with their children compared to previous generations. And that also kind of crowds out other types of relationships, including friendships. So all of these changes are global changes. Chris is not unique in finding friendship through her, her work colleagues, uh, she's the the norm. That is the, the change that's happening. And I think it's helpful to recognize, um, that that is, that that's very multifactorial and there's no evidence to show that there's anything wrong with that either. Um, it's, it's just how, how life is shifting with how, technology and the economy are, are also changing our lives. Yeah, it makes sense. Although it's also a little heartbreaking, like American busyness culture has come to be something that I realize 
can be so problematic for a multitude of factors, not the least of which is our own well-being. But it's it's hard to see it kind of laid out like this from the perspective of um, how it's affecting how we meet people or how we live our life and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, that said, I do think that, you know, making friends in the workplace is great. You have to, you have to have those connections. And I know, um, as someone who used to be a boss and I don't mean like boss, I mean, like I was literally a boss. I mean, let's, let's be, let's be frank. You mean both. I've always been a boss, but when (laughs) I was, when I was boss, one of the things that, you know, I remember we took as part of like an HR training or something was that I think it's like 77% of people leave a job because of the people they work with and not the job itself. And so of course we were like in a training that was talking about cultivating positivity in the workplace, right? Like, so it, I don't have that study to validate that number, but it was something that really stuck with me because I always wanted to create an environment where people felt like they were supported and encouraged and that sort of thing. And now as someone who works with a large team virtually, I've kind of carried that forward as much as I can. I mean, we all, you know, have our differences in life. You never know who you're going to work with and you might not have a lot of in common with them. But I think in general, knowing that that's a factor for us and then leaning into, um, those relationships as being positive and fulfilling in other ways, as Chris had mentioned, like they, you know, she doesn't just talk about work a hundred percent of the time. And if you have that genuine care and connection, I think it, um, it matters. And one of the ways that we don't have that genuine care and connection is on social media. And one of the mm-hmm. things that I loved about Carissa's comment was that She's been off of social media except for work for, I think she said, a year. And I was super blown away by that because that is some impressive stuff. And after watching, what was that documentary we talked about? The Social Dilemma. Um, Something I wish that I could slash would do. I mean, I could do it, but I I won't, right? But I really appreciate... Um, and understand how powerful that could be for her sense of like not being jealous of other people and that kind of stuff. And I think that is really where a lot of the negativity around, I'm going to use quotation marks when I say social connection comes from, especially with younger generations who have always had social media as part of their life and consider that the way to connect with people rather than you and I kind of bridge this world of we remember what it was like before there was social media and we know what it's like after social media. And we, I think, do a good job both personally of like having both of those aspects in our life. Mm -hmm. Like you have groups and different things that you do outside of, you know, your work interests and, you know, connections that you make and different kinds of things like that. You know, I have, neighborhood maj and things that have nothing to do with, you know, my social perspective, right? Like that what I focus on here, but I also have a lot of real life friends that I've made through social media. And I, I know that sometimes what is presented on social media is not accurate or is, um, cultivated 
to be some best version of something that then can create this this jealousy and this um, comparison syndrome and resentment and all of these things that we didn't have when we were all just living our lives. I think it's really important to emphasize that social media comes with pros and cons, which is why, of course, we also dedicate an entire episode to talking about all those things you mentioned, Stacey, like comparison syndrome, how social media can can magnify feelings of social isolation, depression, envy, um, how it can be um, even more harmful for people with pre-existing depression and anxiety. We covered all of that in episode 382. But one of the things that I thought was really interesting was the that Chrissa mentions maintaining her real life friendships with digital tools. So that's phone calls, text messages, video calls. And I was really interested to kind of dig into that separately. Um, not that maintaining relationships with social media is always a problem. Again, as we talked about on our previous episode, uh, when we use online social connections to augment offline relationships rather than replace them, you know, and we're in a psychologically healthy place, social media is a great tool to help us stay connected, but it's hardly the only digital tool out there. And so I was really fascinated to find a 2021 study that was looking at how social interactions are affected by the COVID-19 pandemic recognizing that they're so important for maintaining health and well-being. And what the study did was sort of look at how um, that move to social interactions, moving online, um, you know, us using Zoom, Zoom happy hours, all of the different things that sort of became the norm over the last year and a half, um, using surveys sort of last year at the beginning of the pandemic and then repeating the survey a year later, what was really interesting to me and sort of uh, affirming which uh, and, and relief relieving to see the, this kind of data was what the study showed was that having a larger number of virtual interaction partners, right, more people that were interacting with online was associated with better mental health. And it was mediated by decreased loneliness and increased perception of social support. So what this study showed was that move to maintaining friendships digitally with online tools actually was very positive. Um, and they even showed that it was it was still true, you know, more than a year into the pandemic. Um, and it was even true controlling for the amount of time that people spent interacting online. So just having those those connections with people, um, the study did show that those were very, very beneficial. So Chris mentioning that she is off of social media in order to avoid the negative mental health impacts of social media, but maintaining friendships with her coworkers through other, you know, digital virtual ways, the science shows that that is an excellent way to maintain friendships. This podcast is sponsored by Paleo Valley, maker of our favorite collagen-rich bone broth powder, among other things. We covered the detailed science on why collagen is amazing for our health in episode 430, but I'll keep it simple. It's essential, especially as we age. Us? 
Simple? Never. (laughs) Something I learned, the global collagen market's projected reach is $7.5 billion by 2027. Billion dollars. Yeah, we share detailed research and information on how this boom affects a range of manufacturing processes. It's really important to be an informed consumer. Not all collagen supplements are created equal. We're super picky about which collagen supplement we use because most are made through an industrial process that often uses chemicals and harsh solvents. That's why we both use and love Paleo Valley 100% grass-fed bone broth protein. It's made with 100% grass-fed and finished bones that are free from pesticides and antibiotics, which are simply slow-slimmered in filtered water and nothing else. And Paleo Valley does third-party testing to guarantee you are getting a clean, healthy product. It has almost no flavor and dissolves easily, so it's super versatile. I put a huge scoop into my coffee every morning. <laughs> Just imagined that scoop like overflowing, <laughs> overflowing. It's huge. Yeah. I love to put it in my tea or smoothies, but it's also fantastic in recipes. So head to paleovalley.com and enter code the whole view at checkout to receive 15% off your first order. I'd suggest adding some meat sticks too. Oh, yeah. And don't forget to check out Paleo Valley's other fantastic products like their grass-fed organ complex and their food-based essential C complex using code THEWHOLEVIEW. I'm so glad to hear that. And I am also wanted to circle back around to that physical touch piece, right? Mm -hmm. Like that comfort piece that we've talked about. And I know Carissa talks about her dog and the question, um, is there science to support that physical touch element can then be kind of supplemented, augmented, replaced by whatever we want to say, um, a pet in some sort of way versus human touch? Yes, there is so much science showing that cuddling with a pet and also the connection that we feel with a pet, um, can absolutely make up the shortfall when we're living by ourselves. Um, but also augment our lives when we're still living within a family anyways. So, um, as you mentioned, Stacy, there is this release of oxytocin when we have that physical connection, you know, hugging, cuddling, um, that, Physical touch is very, very helpful for releasing oxytocin, which is sometimes referred to as the love hormone. Um, But oxytocin basically calms the fight or flight response. It reduces anxiety. Um, It has been shown to enhance immune function. It regulates cortisol. Um, There's been a bunch of studies that have looked at sort of health benefits of oxytocin. And there's a bunch of studies showing that when we cuddle with a pet, we're also reducing oxytocin. So we're getting those benefits. Um, We actually did a deep dive into the benefits of pets in episode 402 when I was getting my, who's now an, an, well, now a teenager dog, um, when I was getting my dog. And uh, I can definitely tell you my experience of having had a dog now for a year and a half is, um, I, I mean, I'm more connected to this dog than I've ever been to any pet ever. Um, and so I completely now like understand where this research is coming from. If I'm feeling stressed, I can just cuddle with my dog and I can almost feel my, you know, heart rate and blood pressure lowering. Like it, it really is a fast effect. And I know that Chris's dog is incredibly cuddly. Uh, she is 
quite the character. She like photobombs meetings. Um, she is a lovely, lovely dog. And, um, and so I know that Carissa has the benefit of that, you know, the benefits of a companion animal, right? So studies have shown that they, um, reduce blood pressure, they reduce cortisol, they, um, improve serum lipids, they improve cardiovascular disease, they lower, um, allergies, they can improve symptoms of things like rheumatoid arthritis and osteoporosis. They can be beneficial in increasing focus in people with ADHD. Uh, they reduce depression and anxiety. They reduce feelings of social isolation, which is very important here. Um, and there's also this extra benefit with a dog um, of getting out for a walk and uh, especially if that walk is in some kind of green space, right? Um, that could be a, a neighborhood, a park. Um, and so one of the things I also know is that Carissa gets to walk her dog in a really beautiful, very, very quiet neighborhood where she can go to the beach. She's got lots of lovely, lovely nature spaces to walk her dog. And there's also separate health benefits of being out in nature that are also regulated through the HPA axis. So they're regulated through the stress response, um, which also then improves mental health. So I think, you know, overall, if we look at the things that Chris is worried about, she's worried that living by herself and maintaining, you know, only having her, her best friends being her work colleagues and, um, and, you know, only maintaining those relationships right now digitally. And she's worried that that's going to have some kind of long-term impact on her health. When we take all of those different pieces and look at them, every single piece tells us that Krissa doesn't need to worry. Um, she's got a wonderful pet in her life to have that benefit of companionship and physical touch. She's, um, there's no, there's no problems identified in the scientific literature with having your friends be your coworkers. That's perfectly normal. There's actually wonderful benefits to maintaining friendships online. Um, and the science even shows that living alone is not a problem if you have a strong social network. So when we take all of these things together, you know, can a hermit life be healthy, I think is, is Chris's question. Uh, it can. It's not automatically, right? So the science shows us that being socially isolated and feeling lonely is problematic, but living alone on its own doesn't tell you if you're socially isolated and lonely. And so what the science shows is that solitary living is not necessarily increasing health risks. It is um, one proxy for social isolation. And when we're not actually social isolated and we're nurturing those relationships, even if those relationships are with colleagues, um, that that can be extremely healthy. I love that we're able to give like a positive. Yes, it can be. Um, and I just want to recap like some of the things that we talked about that make this consistent with what the science is showing us um, is ideal for optimizing health in a situation where we're not getting that physical socialization that we know also has benefits, right? So um, first of all, Krissa 
is doing something that I am not capable of doing and am incredibly uh, proud of her for, like setting those boundaries to protect um, her from those feelings of inadequacy that she might otherwise feel on social media, right, that she talked about. Um, She's getting the physical touch from an animal. She is creating connection digitally, whether that's through coworkers or, um, you know, friends and family or different kinds of people. And um, we know, because we know her, that she's also doing other things to support her health, like you said, um, walking in a green space with her dog, focusing on nutrient density with the Nutriboard approach to eating, and making time for those things in her life that she gets a positive release from. I think she mentioned Mm -hmm. cooking, right? Like different kinds of hobbies and work-life balance approach is going to give that sensation. And one of the things that I really kind of want to focus back on her question is that I want to read like this last line. I've essentially created a whole new lifestyle for myself. And um, she said that she is the happiest that she's been. And those are things that I think if we genuinely ask ourselves questions about where we are and how we're feeling, and we can't authentically say those things to ourselves, then there are other people I know in my life who don't proactively do some of the things that Carissa is doing, like those digital friendships, right? If we're if we're so socially isolated that we don't have connections to really be able to have meaningful and open conversation with people if it's just kind of like a superficial I don't know you play video games with someone for example right but it's not like you're not having meaningful conversation I would challenge whether or not that can be healthy because I do think that that connection to multiple people as you said I think is also really important Sarah not just like one person or, you know what I mean? Like that, you know, that one go-to creates such an important chemistry in your brain that has huge impacts on your physical sense of self. And this is something that we've been getting more into on the show in the last year or two, but it's something that um, we know to be the case. I mean, Sarah, you and I talked about the HPA axis years and years ago in a in a uh, presentation I refuse to acknowledge actually ever happened but um, that's a story for a different day but you know these sort of things are I think more socially acceptable or if they're if they still don't feel socially acceptable to you it's something that I know I feel compelled to bring forward to social acceptability because mental health is just as important as physical health when it comes to our overall well-being. And if we're not creating and intentionally cultivating some of the things that Carissa so awesomely outlined in her question that we can point back to, um, then we can look at elements of our life and then say, okay, what can I do to have meaningful conversation with someone beyond just like this person I play words with friends with, (laughs) you know, like your, your banter isn't going to give you that same fulfillment of, I need to tell someone about my difficult day or, you know, I had this traumatic thing happen and who am I going to lean on? Your dog can give you cuddles, but are they going to help you process that in a healthy way? 
probably not. You know, for most people, we we need someone that we feel like can validate our feelings and that, you know, we get a, a mutual fulfillment from. So I love that Carissa has outlined an ideal scenario for us, but I don't want to leave the show with being like, sure, yes, you can be a hermit and healthy. Because I think if we're not um, really pointing to all the things that we can or need to do in order for that to be the case, then it could be um, detrimental if we're like justifying loneliness as it's fine. You know what I mean? Because we we started at the top with how that can negatively affect health. I'm so glad you you brought this conversation back around to that aspect because I want to both reassure Carissa that she's making great choices and that she doesn't need to worry about being happy living by herself um, with how she set up her life. But I think this conversation also highlights some action steps for anybody listening uh, whether it's you yourself who live alone and maybe don't feel as connected and maybe do feel lonely, or if there's someone in your life who you're worried about because they live alone, it may give you some peace of mind because you know they have a strong support network, or it might give you some uh, incentive to figure out how you can be a better support for that person. Or if you are feeling lonely, you know, think about the people in your life that you would like to nurture uh, a stronger social connection with. Um, so I think it's, I think what's really fantastic about Chris's question is that it really helps to, to give this kind of like, here are the action steps, right? So, um, finding those people to nurture those relationships with, and it's completely okay if they're coworkers, Um, but really the research shows it doesn't really matter if it's friends or if it's family or if it's, um, you know, people at your church or if it, or at your, you know, club or whatever it is, it doesn't really matter where those people come into your life from. What matters is the feeling of connection with them. It, this research tells us it's okay to prioritize safety and nurture those connections online provided we are using social media in a way that's very aware of our own mental health challenges. And it also really highlights the benefit of pets um, for anybody living alone. I think it's um, really compelling research to show um, it doesn't need to be a dog. Um, the research, there's been research done on companion cats, on companion parrots, on companion reptiles. Um, there's, there's been tons of research on other kinds of companion animals and it really highlights the benefits of having a animal to interact with and, and just how helpful that can be in our lives, both from a connection standpoint, um, the, the, actual, you know, physical touch that we have with, with companion animals and also how those companion animals can trigger other health related behaviors, right? So in the case of a dog going for a walk every day or going outside into the backyard to play fetch, right? All of those things that can really help improve health independently. Um, but different animals obviously offer sort of different, different things. Um, you know, even if it's, the routine that an animal sets. I mean, routine can be very, very healthy as well. So I think it's very, very 
very, very helpful to think about all of the different moving pieces of this, of this conversation and identify one, like start with one, what is my action step out of this? What is the thing that I want to put more effort into to, to work on, to improve? And I want to recognize that when we do feel very isolated, it can be very intimidating to make overtures. Um, and one of the things that I, um, I didn't pull the research on, so I don't have the numbers, but one of the things that's helpful, I think as a, as a last piece of, of, um, of this whole, this whole puzzle is that, uh, service volunteerism can be an incredibly important tool for social connection. So if you're feeling like you feel lonely, but you, you don't know who in your life you want to spend more time with, um, you don't, you don't want to go outside of your home to, to, because of the pandemic to meet new people. Um, think about different ways that you might be able to volunteer, um, volunteer to, to tutor a kid or, um, something like big brothers, or there's, there's all kinds of organizations, um, that need people. (laughs) And, um, that, that type of volunteerism actually has been shown to be very, very effective at um, making the person donating their time to feel very, very socially connected. So the last little, the last little tip out of all of this conversation is if you don't know where to start, volunteerism is a great place. I love that. And I want to thank you listeners for being part of the show. And I'm going to recap if you want to uh, grab yourself a pair of Rothy's, you can do so at rothys.com with $20 off your first pair using whole view. You can get 15% off at justthrivehealth.com using the whole view and at paleovalley.com using code the whole view for 15% off. And if you want more you can head over to patreon.com slash the whole view where Sarah and I always do another weekly episode over there and give you the real tea on what we really thought after each episode. And honestly, that usually transforms into just like a whole other show topic altogether because you know how we are with tangents and <laughs> <laughs> let's be real. <laughs> so we hope to catch you over there where you get great content. Um, I think it's five bucks a month. So thanks for listening. We'll be back again next week. We love providing the whole view podcast for you as a free resource. You can support the show by using the links and codes we share in our podcast. And we love to read your reviews and chats wherever you listen. And don't forget to share our podcast with your friends and family. Speaking of chat, did you know that you can get exclusive behind the scenes content on Patreon? When you support us with your Patreon membership, you get access to live Q&As and weekly bonus audio, but they're not for kids' ears because our bonus content is explicit. You can also stay in touch with us via our social media channels. I'm at Real Everything Blog. And I'm at The Paleo Mom. And we've got more great resources on our websites and in our newsletters. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. 
With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.